Hello and welcome to Seeds and Ways, a podcast. I'm the Reverend Dr. Cheryl A. Lindsay, Minister for Worship and Theology for the United Church of Christ. Today I'm sharing my reflection, Wisdom, based on Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, which reads, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You'd better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Wisdom. Even the simplest weddings take preparation. After a couple agrees to join their lives together, the ceremony that makes that commitment official can become a significant event with layers of participation and complexity. Some couples add rituals that reflect their heritage and identity, such as hand fasting or jumping the broom. When one or both parties have offspring, they may be invited to demonstrate their commitment and support of the union in some way. Other couples eschew all of that by having a simple ceremony at a courthouse, eloping to a distant location, or inviting their officiant to perform a private wedding at home. The reception can be an even grander occasion. It may be held at a rented location in a hotel or special event center. Sometimes the couple may opt to transform a humble space with extravagant decorations in order to satisfy a desire to party hard without maximizing the cost. When there is a celebration following the nuptials, guests are invited to celebrate, bring gifts, and express their support. Family members often are given special treatment, and the attendants of the spouses hold special responsibility as they position themselves alongside the couple entering a new life, like bridesmaids. Today, those attendants reflect the state of the life of the bride. Bridesmaids may already be married themselves, or they may be single and live independently. They have voice in how they support the couple, and their encouragement, attention, and responsibility is directed toward the bride, not the groom. Our contemporary experience of bridesmaids makes this parable a bit confusing in translation. The role has changed. Quote, the parable of the ten bridesmaids is found only in Matthew. The term translated by the NRSV as bridesmaids is literally virgins, but that term is used very generally to refer to any young woman of marriageable age. In wedding customs of first century Palestine, it was common for the bridegroom to be escorted by such a company of bridesmaids, virgins, to the home of the bride. They would then escort the couple to the house where the wedding and the wedding feast were to take place. In this parable, five are wise and five are foolish. This contrasting of the wise and the foolish is an ancient conventional device used in wisdom literature. 
Jesus uses this device both here and in the Sermon on the Mount, where a wise man builds on a rock and a foolish man builds on sand, because the foolish bridesmaids are unprepared, having taken no flask of extra oil for their lamps, they miss the wedding banquet. The earlier motif of Jesus as the bridegroom and the eschaton at a wedding banquet is picked up once again here. End quote, Anna Case Winters. Far too often this passage is preached with an exclusive focus on the foolishness of a few bridesmaids. While they are significant, they are not the only part of the story. Given that they are used in a parable relying on contrast, the wise bridesmaids deserve at least equal attention. Perhaps they invite even more focus as they serve as the exemplars in the narrative. Interestingly, the groom is not the center of the action either. Rather, he serves instrumentally as the object of the bridesmaid's action rather than the subject of the story. In this story, the groom presumably represents Jesus, but Jesus wants his disciples to know that their actions in the coming age will matter just as much as his, for the continued reign of God. After several chapters in which Jesus engages in adversarial conversations with religious leaders and detractors of his ministry, Jesus turns his attention directly to the preparation of his disciples for ministry without his physical presence. The audience has changed, and so has the nature of his teaching. The point is not to convict or confound. They're not trying to set traps or gather evidence. He is their teacher, they are faithful students. Jesus no longer chastises or, and corrects people who have lost their way. Now he encourages and prepares friends who eagerly receive his instruction and who will soon be responsible for continuing his ministry. In this parable, the message is simply to be prepared and ready at any moment because opportunities come unannounced. Jesus has demonstrated his responsiveness to dynamic conditions during their time together. Some moments have called for preaching. At other times, healing of the sick has been needed. He dialogued and debated with religious opponents and spent time in conversation with other religious leaders who displayed more curiosity than confrontation. Throughout his ministry, Jesus modeled what would be required of his disciples. The metaphor of the ten bridesmaids informed them that wisdom would be necessary for them to discern their path and to be responsive to the needs of a given moment, encounter, or opportunity. What do we do to prepare for an eventual reality that is anticipated but unscheduled? Be ready for it at all times, Jesus suggests. Readers often consider this text to be eschatological in nature. This is about the second coming of Christ and certainly being ready for that anticipated and unscheduled event in whatever form it, ta it may take is a good idea. At the same time, Jesus' orientation to the future was never at the expense of the present. While Christian communities have become almost exclusively preoccupied with making reservations for heaven, Jesus told us to pray and act for heaven on earth. Quote, these two chapters pose numerous questions for contemporary readers. Perhaps the most basic question concerns how we engage eschatological thinking, both the notion of divine intervention to affect the end of history with the establishment of God's purposes and its bleak, hopeless perspective on the present. 2,000 years later and counting, the imminent expectation of 2420. 
34, has not materialized. Some parts of the contemporary church live in such thinking. Other parts find no residence with it at all. End quote, Warren Carter. The bridegroom comes to get married. Jesus came to repair the rift and dissolve the disconnect between heaven and earth. In the beginning, the separation between the two does not reflect hierarchy, merely difference. The earth, according to the creation narratives, was never intended to be this desolate and doomed place that humanity would need to escape from. The incarnation is the embodiment of the prayer for God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The foolish bridesmaids do not respect the role they play in the marriage event. The wise ones know that active participation requires preparation. They may not be the bride, but this moment also belongs to them. They take that responsibility seriously. They are ready to accompany the bridegroom on the journey. Are we? Quote, how do we stay alert so it doesn't catch us off guard, overwhelmed, and ultimately lost? Surprisingly, Jesus never told us to prepare for his return with a spiritually disengaged escapism withdrawing from this world's pains and joys, hanging on by our fingernails until he extracts us from this evil place. Instead, by presenting three images of readiness, a household, a wedding, and a pot of money, Jesus tells us to prepare for his return and for our eternal destiny by caring more and not less about our present life. End quote, Matt Woodley. Having enough oil to keep the lamp burning is such a mundane example of preparedness. It's a simple and obvious detail, at least it would have been for an audience without the convenience of electricity and light switches. The gospel imperative is hard, but not particularly complex. Readiness comes in the small details as much as in the climactic moments. Jesus lived over 30 years, spent three years in public ministry and only a few hours on the cross. Every moment made up his mission. Every encounter was important. Every decision moved him forward in preparation for the glory of the passion and resurrection. Following Jesus means being ready to pick up our cross when the hard thing is required, but more often it means living a life that participates in the reign of God. All of the bridesmaids have enough wick. They all trimmed it. Half of them did not have enough oil to keep the flame going. What fuels your life in Christ? What keeps you going in the journey toward the realization of the kingdom? The wise bridesmaids do not give up their oil. A superficial reading of the text may accuse them of lacking generosity or being petty and pompous in their response to the pleas of their foolish counterparts. Yet, there is no condemnation in their wise reply. What they have is not enough to supply the needs of all the bridesmaids. If they give up what they have, no one will have enough. The wise ones direct their peers to go to the source to fill their needs. In ministry and in life, we may be tempted to depend upon one another for what we can only receive from the source. When we believe that only authorized ministers can pray or lead in worship, we deplete our spiritual life. When we fail to affirm, cultivate, and nurture the gifts of each member of our faith community, we stunt our collective growth and development. When we think that we can piggyback on the service that others render, we limit our participation in the kingdom. When we fail to build up our spiritual supply, we close the door and miss out 
not on heaven, but on now. That's foolish. Seek wisdom. Thank you for joining me. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find the full sermon seats entry, including a suggested congregational response, quotes for further reflection, voices of African descent, and the roadmap for the entire season on ucc.org. Sermon Seeds also has a Facebook page where I do a weekly Facebook Live video in preparation for the reflection and share updates and links for Sermon Seeds and Worship Ways. Follow us there and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. I pray that this tool provides a seed that will bear fruit in your faith community as you proclaim the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.